Well, as we just sang, um, no one takes Christ's life from him. And the passage that we're going to look at this morning, uh, we see men who come and they want to take Christ's life from him. And yet we also see Christ who is in control of the entire scene, willingly giving himself for the sins of his people. So we're in Matthew chapter 26, looking at verses 47 through 68. That can be found on page number 990 of the Pew Bibles. Actually, it begins on 989 and into 990. So beginning with chapter, chapter 26, verse 47, Matthew continues to describe the passion of Christ. He says, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12. And with him, a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man sees him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? 
They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we see our Savior willingly going to the cross. We see his restraint. We see his trust in your word. We see his power and authority, even while the authorities of the world are claiming victory over him. God, help us to worship the Christ. Help us to love your son. Give us eyes of faith to see that we might worship and trust and that we might live lives after his example. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how do we know what is real? I imagine most people you talk to would say that they live their lives based on reality. But what is reality? Scripture makes the audacious claim that the unseen realities described in the Bible are more true and real and lasting than anything a human being can touch, feel, or measure. Which means reality, true reality, is reality as the Bible defines it, which is a nice thing to say to a bunch of Christians on a Sunday morning. So the real question is, what does it look like to live as if that is true? What does it look like to live by every word that comes from the mouth of God? What does it look like to really entrust ourselves to the words written down in a book that's been assembled and copied and translated and interpreted by men for 3,000 years? Can we really bet our life and our happiness and our eternity on the words of Scripture, trusting that it accurately describes reality, both what is seen and what is unseen, and trusting that we can even understand it? And the answer is we can. We can because our Savior did. And it's the only explanation for what we see him doing in our passage this morning. So may God grant us the grace to entrust ourselves to this book like Jesus does. And may we worship him alone this morning as we watch him do just that. So here's our outline. First, we're going to look at the betrayal and then the arrest, followed by the trial. And finally, the testimony of Jesus. So first, the betrayal. A betrayal has to be one of the most psychologically painful experiences that a human can uh, experience. 
The more committed we are to someone, the more we trust and depend on them, the more painful the betrayal is. So married couples, business partners, fellow soldiers, lifelong friends. And these kind of relationships where you're with each other day in and day out, you get to the point where you can almost predict how the other is going to respond in certain situations. You know what each other cares about without even having to ask. You know each other's strengths and weaknesses, temptations and virtues. You become confident in what the other person thinks and feels. You even are confident in what they believe about you. So not only is betrayal emotionally painful when you realize that someone doesn't love you like you love them, but it's disorienting. It's like like going to bed in your own bed and then waking up in a foreign country. It's life shattering. Not only can you not trust that person, but you can't even trust yourself. How could you have missed it? How could you have been so foolish? That's why Matthew tells us, while Jesus was still speaking, Judas came. And then he describes him as one of the 12. The only reason to mention that he's one of the 12 is to highlight how deep and profound this betrayal is. Sometimes I think to myself, if people only knew Jesus, if they they only could give him a chance, if they could sit down and read the gospels and see how wise and loving Jesus is, how much grace he has. As if the only reason someone would reject Jesus is because they don't know him. But Judas knew him. Judas experienced his love and his wisdom and his grace in person. Which makes you wonder what could the perfect son of God who did nothing but love everyone perfectly, what could he have done to make Judas want to do this? But he didn't just betray him. He led his enemies right to him. Remember, they didn't have pictures back then. They'd all heard about Jesus, but nobody knew what he looked like unless they'd met him. And so Judas betrays Jesus and then leads a crowd with swords and clubs right to Jesus. We know from John, this crowd included Roman soldiers. We know from Luke that the uh, chief priests and the elders are following behind. And the way they would know it was Jesus, Matthew tells us, is because the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, sees him. It was not unusual for men to kiss one another at this time. It was a sign of affection and friendship. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul calls on Christians to greet one another with a holy kiss. But Judas could have just pointed him out. He could have came and said, that's the one right there. But for some reason, he wanted to give Jesus a kiss. It's like stabbing you in the heart and then twisting the knife. But it gets worse. He came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi. 
and he kissed him. The word translated greetings means I'm so glad to see you. Rabbi is a term from res- of respect. The Greek lexicon says it's an honorary title for outstanding teachers of the law. This isn't just betrayal. This isn't just stabbing him in the heart and twisting the knife. This is contempt. This is mockery. This is hatred. And don't think for a moment that Jesus didn't feel all this just because he knew it was coming. If you've been with someone who's been betrayed before and you've seen them shaking and crying uncontrollably, that's how Jesus is feeling in this moment. This is the human emotions that he's experiencing. The kind of betrayal he's going through shakes a person to the core. Yet Jesus said to him, friend, which means my companion, my companion, do what you came to do. Jesus is giving Judas another chance to repent. That he would call him friend in this moment is an appeal to the heart. So why would Judas do this? And why would he do it in such a way that makes it so personal and cruel? It's like he's trying to rub Jesus's face in the fact that he's not who Jesus thought he was. This is like someone sending their spouse pictures of them on vacation with their mistress. This is how insane sin is. Because there's absolutely no explanation for why Judas would do this other than the fact that his unbelief has taken complete control of his heart. He can't see the unseen reality of who Jesus actually is. And the only way to be indifferent about Jesus is not to know him. But Judas knew him. And the more you know him, the more you see he's either your master and king or he's in the way. Remember, we cannot love two masters. We'll either love the one and hate the other. or We'll we'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. And Judas was so close to Jesus. He had to choose to love Jesus or hate him. He had to be devoted to him or despise him because sin and unbelief are insane. Next is the arrest. Now just try to imagine for a moment what the disciples are experiencing here. A second ago, their eyes were filled with sleep while Jesus was off praying. Then Jesus comes and he rouses them and he tells them that the betrayer is at hand. You guys can sleep later. And then all of a sudden there's Judas leading a crowd of temple guards, Roman soldiers with the religious leaders following behind. They've got swords and clubs. They're watching their friend Judas now openly mock and betray 
their Lord. They're probably filled with anger and fear and confusion, even though Jesus has been telling them that that this is going to happen all along. And then the soldiers came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And so what are the disciples' options at this point? If they do nothing, maybe they get killed. Maybe they get arrested too. If they fight, that maybe gives them a chance, but I'm imagining the crowd, it's a great crowd. It's, it's big enough. They would probably overwhelm them or they could run. Matthew tells us, behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand, drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. We know from John, this is Peter. Peter, who just said he would be willing to die with Jesus if that's what it takes, is trying to prove it and back up his claim. And then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. The man whose ear Peter cut off, his name is Malchus. He is the servant of the high priest. We know from Luke that at this point, Jesus heals him. And just think about it. Think of how high the tensions are at this moment. Think about this crowd that that came out to arrest Jesus. Who knows what they're thinking? They know Jesus is a miracle worker who has great power. They're probably just as scared. And when you have two groups of people who are frightened and scared and one one of them strikes out in violence, what usually happens? More violence and then more violence and then more violence. And yet Jesus by the power of his person and by the sheer will of his character is able to calm them all down in this moment. He heals the man. He sets Peter in his place. He he keeps him from being foolish, probably keeps Peter from getting arrested or killed. And all the while proves that he is the one who is setting the emotional tone. He is the one who is really in control of everything. But Jesus doesn't just tell Peter to put away his sword. He also gives him three reasons why. First, he says, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. As a proverb, we all know this is true. Those who live violent lives usually end up with that violence backfiring on them, right? This is why the mafia king always gets stabbed in the back in a crowded nightclub. This is why the dictator always gets killed by his own people. But Jesus is also saying something about the kingdom of God here. God has given the sword to the government, not the church. We don't advance the kingdom or defend the name of Jesus with violence. We proclaim the good news of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We take up our cross and follow him. We turn the other cheek. If asked to go one mile, we go two. So Peter's values are all mixed up here. He doesn't understand yet Jesus's mission. He doesn't even understand Jesus's mission for him. Later, Jesus is going to call him to feed his sheep, not to lead them into battle. The second reason Jesus tells him to put away his sword is because he doesn't need Peter's sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Peter, I don't need your sword. 
A Roman legion is 6,000 soldiers, which means Jesus could snap his fingers and there would be 6,000 angels for him and for the other 11 disciples in a moment. Which means Jesus is willingly letting himself be betrayed and arrested. It also means all of heaven is standing down. Just think about it. In this moment, every angel, every heavenly creature has their eyes fixed on Gethsemane and everything that's happening in this moment. And on one hand, they're ready to act at a moment's notice because the son of the living God is being betrayed and arrested. The most unjust thing that has ever happened in human history is happening right before their eyes. And yet at the other, at the other hand, they know that Jesus will not call them. Because the other reason Jesus gives Peter for putting away his sword is so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. He goes on to ask, but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? So he could call down 12 legions of angels if he wanted to, but if he did that, then the scriptures would not be fulfilled. Which means Jesus is willingly, freely choosing not to call 12 legions of angels for no other reason than the fact that it's written in God's word. Have you ever made a decision in your life going against what made sense to you, going against what felt right and that you wanted to do, for no other reason than what is written in God's word. Have you ever confessed a sin simply because God's word says, confess your sins to one another that you might be healed? Have you ever told the truth when it feels like it would cost you everything simply because God's word commands us to tell the truth? Have you ever denied yourself whatever your flesh was crying out for? Have you submitted to who God calls you to submit to? When I pray, I don't hear God's voice audibly. I've never heard God speak to me audibly. We know in scripture that Jesus heard God's voice three times. At his baptism, in the Mount of Transfiguration, and then one time in John after the triumphal entry in Jerusalem. So when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, crying out to God, pleading with him for there to be another way, I wonder if God answered him, as he's crying out the same way he answers us when we cry out. With audible silence, and then by leading him to the words he has already spoken in scripture, reminding him that it must be so. Jesus 
was compelled to go to the cross by the words written down in a book, assembled, copied, translated by men over a thousand years. And if our Savior can trust God's word that much, so can we. His death on the cross happens to fulfill scripture. Even his arrest in this moment is him being led like a lamb to slaughter, fulfilling Isaiah 57, three. And then he takes one last opportunity to preach to the crowd. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. That word robber could be translated insurrectionist or revolutionary. Jesus certainly was not that. And they knew it. They knew he was a teacher. They knew he had done nothing wrong. If he had actually sinned, they would have been able to easily go to the temple and arrest him. But because he'd done nothing wrong, they had to come in secret and arrest him at night. And so he's showing them their guilt right now, if they have eyes to see. He wants them to see their hypocrisy because they have to see it. If there's any hope that that crowd would repent of their sins and believe in this man, they have to see their sin. And so Jesus is showing it to them. One commentator says this, he says, Most of those who heard Jesus speak these words hardened themselves in sin. To be sure, Jesus rebukes, but at the same time, he's even now seeking the lost that he may save them. So Jesus is arrested. As he's arrested, he fulfills scripture by being numbered among the transgressors. Once he's arrested, he is struck right in the uh, sheep scatter. Fulfilling Zechariah 13, 7, right? The disciples flee. And so here's the question for us. Does scripture rule our hearts like this? To the point where we would submit to betrayal and arrest if that's what it took to keep the word of God. No one had better reasons to ignore God's word than Jesus. He is innocent. He had control of seven legions, probably more of angels. Yet God's word must be fulfilled, which takes us to the trial. Now I put trial and scare quotes on the uh, outline here because uh, it's not so much a trial as it is just an excuse uh, for an execution, but it does have some elements of a trial. It's happening before the Jewish high council. Uh, That would be the court in uh, Jerusalem. The chief priest is presiding over uh, this event and he's the chief judge in Israel at the time. There are witnesses. Uh, Jesus is even put under oath eventually. So those are all the things that make it seem like a trial, but it's happening in the middle of the night in secret at the home of the high priest, all unorthodox. Uh, They probably didn't have the same laws we do in America here, um, but likely even then you have to at least know the crime before you arrest someone. Uh, But they arrested him by virtue of a bribe and now they're bringing in witnesses trying to find a crime. We don't know if Jesus had the right to a defense attorney, but certainly criminals had some rights and privileges as citizens. Jesus clearly has none. 
So let's get the scene in front of us. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. So they're at the home of the high priest. A few days ago, probably this same group were the ones who gathered to make a plan to arrest and put Jesus to death. Uh, the only difference now is the scribes are there and the scribes were the experts in the law. So they, they got their lawyers now. And then we're told Peter follows Jesus at a distance, which is setting us up for the next scene we'll look at next week, uh, where Peter denies Jesus. And then Matthew tells us they were seeking false testimony against Jesus. And Matthew's probably adding a little commentary here. Likely they weren't intentionally seeking false testimony. They would have been happy if there was actually true testimony against Jesus. The only problem is, as Matthew knows, Jesus is totally innocent. So any testimony against him would be false. And the problem is they can't find anything that will stick. So we don't know where these witnesses come from. We don't know what they're saying. All we know is none of it was good enough, which makes you wonder, why did it have to be good enough? It's not like anything else they're doing is legal. Just make something up and kill him. Here's why. Even though this trial is a sham, they still know they need a believable crime if they're going to get the support of the Jewish people and the Romans. They can arrest Jesus because they're jealous of him and don't like him, but they can't get everyone else to agree to kill him without a good reason. And so you can imagine if you're the, if you're the uh, uh, chief priest and the elders here, you, you've, you've got everything's falling into place. You got Judas to betray him. You, you were able to arrest him without the crowds watching. You got him here and all you need is a crime and you can't find anything. Finally, we're told at last two came forward and said, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. So finally, a charge with some potential. First of all, there's two witnesses, which was required by Jewish law to confirm a charge. Second, there's a crime. Jesus is being accused of threatening to destroy the temple, the most sacred and valuable building in all of Israel. Now, Jesus's actual words are not recorded in Matthew, but thankfully John has them for us. And here's what Jesus actually said. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus isn't saying that he would destroy the temple. And John 2, where this line comes from, he's actually talking to the Jews and he's basically telling them, if you destroy this temple, I will raise it up in three days. So the testimony is twisted, Jesus's actual words. But none of that matters because Caiaphas now has two witnesses. He has a believable crime, at least a potentially believable one. And so then he turns to Jesus to get his defense, but Jesus won't speak. And sometimes the best defense in a trial is not to speak. I don't know about you, but I've heard uh, sometimes defense attorneys will, will advise their clients not to take the stand. Um, but Jesus's silence here is not a defense tactic. He's silent because he's fulfilling scripture. Here's Isaiah 53, seven. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, 
Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Passover lambs don't talk. And Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb being led to slaughter, silent before its shearers, in obedience to the Father, laying down his life to save his people from their sins and to fulfill the scriptures. Next, he will have to speak because Caiaphas puts him under oath, which leads us to our final point, the testimony of Jesus. So after Caiaphas hears the testimony against Jesus, he turns to Jesus to hear his defense only to get nothing from Jesus. Um, He probably could have just let it go at this point. He's got the charge of threatening to destroy the temple. And maybe that was enough to convince the Jews Jesus needed to die. Maybe that was enough to convince the Romans that Jesus needed to die. But Caiaphas was not satisfied yet, and we we don't know exactly why. It could be uh, that Caiaphas felt this charge was not enough. Some commentators said that. They said, no, 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 Caiaphas just thinks this charge is not enough. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. It could be now that Caiaphas had what he needed. He decided to ask one more question that had been bugging him. And I don't know between the two which one it is, but but this one seems right to me. Because the charge about destroying the temple, that seems like enough to, to, to get Jesus on. And you can just picture Caiaphas here. So he said, the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And he's asking this question because Jesus has, a few days ago, openly ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey, symbolically claiming to be the Messiah. He's he's told people that he forgives their sin. He's been battling with the religious leaders this whole time over his his right to uh, interpret scripture ahead of tradition and the scribes. And you can just imagine, this has been bugging Caiaphas. So to find out, he puts him under oath and says, I adjure you by the living God, forcing Jesus to speak. And then he asks him point blank, are you the Messiah? If he says yes, they probably all laugh at him and then still bring him up on the charges of threatening to destroy the temple. If he says no, he's a liar. So there's really no easy answer to this question because Jesus can't lie. But Caiaphas thinks of the Messiah as only a conquering king in Israel. And Jesus is the conquering king, but he's also the suffering servant whose throne is in heaven. So if he says yes, he's got to correct their understanding. So Jesus said to him, you have said so, which means something along the lines of, you said it, not me, which is a way of saying, I don't disagree with you, but there's more to it. And then Jesus goes on. But I tell you from now on, you, everyone there, will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. So the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven is a loose uh, quote referencing the glorious heavenly being from Daniel chapter seven who comes to God in the clouds of heaven to receive an eternal kingdom. 
Jesus is also weaving in Psalm 110 verse 1, claiming to be the Lord sitting at God's right hand. So Jesus is basically saying this, I am the Messiah, but you will not see me ruling the throne of earthly Israel. You will see me entering the clouds of heaven to take my place at the right hand of God and the heavenly kingdom where I will have authority to judge you. That's what Jesus is saying. And they heard it. They understood that's what he was saying. And they would see that. They would see Jesus die, rise again, ascend into heaven. They would see the church begin to pour out from Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth as Jesus, exalted to his throne with all authority, leads the church out. But in this moment, all they heard was a pathetic man who'd been arrested, who'd been abandoned by his followers, claiming things that sound crazy to them. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You now, you have now heard his blasphemy. So this is probably better than anything Caiaphas could have hoped for. In his mind, Jesus has given him an even better charge than the one about destroying the temple. To the Jews, he's now a blasphemer who deserves to die. And to the Romans, he's claiming to be king over Caesar. Then he turns to the rest of the council and says, what is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. And then they spit in his face and struck him and some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? So our passage begins with Judas mocking, hating, betraying Jesus. And it ends with the most religious people in all of Israel mocking him and spitting on him and slapping him. They do not believe his claim to be the Messiah or the Christ as it's translated in Greek. Mark tells us they covered his face and beat him. So that question about who struck you really would have required supernatural knowledge. So let me ask us the question Caiaphas asked after Jesus's testimony. What is your judgment of this man? Is Jesus the king? who went willingly to his death as heaven laid down their arms? Is he the one who could have called down 12 legions of angels, but chose instead to prove the power and reliability of the scripture and who is now risen from the dead and reigning at the right hand of God in the clouds of heaven? Or is he something else? Because we don't have to literally betray him or mock him or spit on him and openly hate him to miss seeing who he really is. All we have to do is not believe. But if we do believe, then we can hear this story and see our king coming like a lamb to slaughter, silent before his shearers to save us from our sins, giving us hope. Hope that our sins are forgiven. Hope that even if we are betrayed, arrested, tried, or condemned, that like our Savior, we can trust God who judges justly and has a purpose for everything he does, like we just quoted in Catechism, uh, Hadward Catechism question and answer 27 about the providence of God. And even better than that, we have a king 
a king who loves us and died for us and who now rules us graciously by his word and spirit. And we have the Bible. We have God's very words and its unbreakable truth and power that we can build our life on. We can live into everything it says. There's no need to deny it, explain it away, or change a single word. In the pages of scripture, we can finally rest into the reality of life where we no longer need to find ourselves or prove ourselves or be anything other than who God says we are. And only that place is peace. Forgiven by our King, resting in his word, worshiping who he is as we see displayed on the pages of scripture. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we're thankful for Christ. We're thankful for what we see in these words, which is our God and our King ruling and reigning in utter humility as he gives his life as a ransom for sinners. Father, the things that he suffered, the betrayal, being mocked and spit on, they are so far below his worth and his dignity. And yet he willingly, he willingly embraced this to fulfill scriptures and to save his people. God, may he be our King. May he be our Lord. May he be our savior. May he be the one we love. In Jesus' name, amen.